are listening to the Scared Litless podcast, the podcast all about suspenseful literature and the authors who make it their job to keep you on the edge of your seat. Hello, everybody. My name is Amy Suter Clark, and this is the very first episode of my new podcast, Scared Litless. I decided to do a podcast at the urging of my writing wife and incredible author, Bethany C. Morrow. And Hashtag no regrets, I guess. It's been really fun to put this together so far, and I hope that all readers of crime, thrillers, suspense, mystery, all the creepy, spooky, uh, spine-chilling genres enjoy listening to this podcast and get something out of it. Uh, I'm going to be focusing a lot on the perspective as a thriller author myself, on Uh, what it's like to work in this genre, how much I love reading, watching, listening, consuming all of the media around this genre. And that's something that I've really focused on in my own fiction writing as well. My very first book, Girl 11, comes out in April next year in the US and May in Australia and other countries thereafter. And one of the key focuses on that is our obsession with true crime and all crime stories as a society and what that actually looks like in practice, what the impacts are on people, uh, particularly on victims of crime, and on podcast listeners and podcast hosts specifically, as my main character is the host of a viral true crime podcast investigation series that I made up. So I am really excited about Girl 11. I think there's something to love in it for Everyone who loves crime fiction, suspense, and particularly for lovers of true crime podcasts, I took a lot of inspiration, particularly from Michelle McNamara um, and All Be Gone in the Dark. I'm sure a lot of people know about her. She was a, a crime blogger and journalist who investigated and really kept alive the investigation and the push for resources and funding to be put towards investigating the Golden State Killer which is the moniker that she uh, created for the Eron's killer, as he was previously known, and wrote this incredible book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. So if you haven't read that or listened to the audiobook, I highly recommend it. But first, a little bit more about me. I am an author, as I said. I have a Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing from Kingston University in London, where I studied Fiction in general, I started out writing more literary suspense, and the first two books didn't sell. So um, a little bit of comfort for other people writing out there. Uh, It doesn't mean anything about you as a writer, about your abilities, if you don't sell the first or even the second or even the third book. Sometimes timing is everything, and you do learn something from every project. But I have been writing solidly for over eight, nine years now, which is a long time. And my debut comes out next year. So it'll be about 10 years from the time I started my master's degree when my first novel comes out. So there's always time. You are not running out of it. And don't give up if you are working on a project at the moment, or if you faced a lot of rejection, that is part of the deal, unfortunately, and some people face more than others. So one of the first questions I get asked about my writing and about Girl 11 specifically is where I came up with the idea. The seed of the idea for me started with this question, a what if question, which is often where my ideas for novels start. 
And the question was, what if there was a killer whose victims were each a year younger than the last? And once I had that question, that kind of unique idea for a serial killer, I was just so intrigued by it. And I had to discover why someone would do that and built a story around it, basically. And the podcast element actually came into it way later than you might expect. When I wrote first drafts of this, Elle was actually just a plain old ordinary detective in Minneapolis. And really, the end of the day, the drafts just weren't working. And I got some incredible feedback and editorial notes from my agent. And I had had an idea very late stages of drafting this book. What if Elle was a podcast host instead of a detective? And I sort of pushed past it because I thought, I don't want to go back and revise this whole book because it would change everything about her methods of investigation and who she is as a person and her access to information, etc. But once I got that editorial feedback from Sharon, I really realized that she was exactly right. It wasn't working as a procedural, which is sort of the way it was written before. And I completely revised the book in the book in six weeks. So it was a really, uh, really great learning experience for me as a writer that you really need to trust your gut. And if you have an idea for how you can improve your manuscript, even if you think it's going to take a lot of work, trust that instinct, um, especially if you have the opportunity to discuss with a trusted critique partner or your agent or editor, definitely do that. Uh, because it's been so worth it. And I don't think this book would be anywhere near as rich as it is now if I hadn't made that change, even though it was very painful and took a lot of work and time. So we're about five months out from the book coming out, and we actually had a really exciting day today. Um, as I'm recording this, it is a few hours after I tweeted and posted on Instagram and Facebook my book cover for the U.S., and I am so excited about this book cover. It's been a long journey to get here. And the cover is stunning. It features a castor bean plant with these creepy, sickly, sweet looking uh, seed pods and leaves that are just so deadly looking. And it's exactly what I wanted. It's beautiful. I can't wait to hold it in my hands. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you go to my website or uh, visit my social media. I'm at A Suter Clark, S-U-I-T-E-R-C-L-A-R-K-E on all social media, basically. So I'm very easy to find. It'll also be in the episode notes for you there. And if you're interested in learning more about Girl 11 or pre-ordering, which would make my absolute day, you can find out more information on girl11, the number 11book.com, girl11book.com. All right, without further ado, I am going to get started on this segment with Bethany C. Morrow, where we're going to quiz each other on whether we think the trivia facts we've found are about an author or a killer. Can't wait to tell you about it. Hi, I'm Bethany C. Morrow, author of the novels Mem and A Song Below Water, and I am joined today by Amy Suter-Clark, the author of the forthcoming Girl 11, and I want to do a little segment that I like to call Author or Killer. Amy, the rules are simple. I don't know them. Can you <laughs> yes. them to our audience? Bethany, thanks for doing this with me. Uh, so Author or Killer is a very simple 
a very simple premise. We have each collected trivia facts about someone who is either an author or a murderer in real life. And we are going to state those facts to each other. And then the other person has to guess whether we are talking about an author or a murderer. So why don't you go first? So my first fact is that this person was devastated by a house fire that consumed their entire home and belongings. And I want you to tell me if that is the chilling backstory of a killer or an author. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to guess that was an author's backstory. Well, it was a trick question. You're wrong. It wasn't their backstory. It happened to this author in the middle of their career, but um, <laughs> it was Toni Morrison. After ah. the publication of the Song of Solomon, she lost her home in a fire and had a wow. very hard time processing it. I believe it. That would be devastating. All right. So I get one point. Air horn sound. Do you? Insert Ooh. air horn sound. <laughs> All right. This person was descended from Quakers on both sides of their family. Oh, that's a killer. I just... There's <laughs> Got all, it has to be because there's all that repressed violence um, and it had to come out somewhere. Absolutely. And it did come out somewhere, but it came out in Raymond Chandler's writing, not in his actions that we know of. As far as we know. Allegedly. Here's what we want you guys to understand. Anyone, if they wish hard enough, can become a killer, no matter what they were before. So It's true. Nothing it's true. And you don't have to just be a killer. You can be a killer and an author. And I'm sure, I'm very confident that that has happened before. 100%. Yeah. Um, my second fact is that this person first came to notoriety after being convicted of burglary and murder. Okay. So I'm going to guess murderer if they You'd were convicted. Because it was a, 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 in accordance, almost as though I knew where this conversation was going to go and what we were going to inspire in your listeners. And true, this, my friend, just because you're convicted does not mean you did it. That is also true, but he totally did. And <laughs> <laughs> so that was Jack Henry Abbott, who was an author murderer. Wow. Very on topic. As I mean, just like I was very precise in my like, question. This. It was, and I love it because while in jail for murder and burglary, he wrote a series of letters to author Norman Naylor, who then uh, petitioned on his behalf for parole, which he was granted. Six weeks later, he stabbed a man to death. Wow. Then, upon yep. going back to jail, wrote another book, which was not popular. <laughs> <laughs> I think he thought, oh, this is my brand. Go to jail for right. murder or write a book. Or both. And so, just trust in yourself, listener, and you can do... Do whatever you want. Do both. And also, yet another thing we have to hold Norman Mailer accountable for. And there are already so many. 
And here's the thing. I also hold him accountable for the episode of The Simpsons that was clearly loosely based on this relationship. I don't know <laughs> if you guys watch The Simpsons more than Amy does. It's her one flaw. It's not hard to. Um, it's her one flaw is that she has only seen The Simpsons episode that I forced her to watch. But um, there's an episode where Marge goes to a prison rodeo, meets a prisoner who is a painter. And of course, because she herself is an artist, decides he couldn't possibly be a bad person, petitions for him to get parole. And of course, he um, is an arsonist. He's a serial arsonist and, and burns Skinner's car and the school because you should never believe in people i think that's the, the message yeah is that right. is that everyone is beyond hope exactly and we should never give anyone a second chance that's what bethany c morrow you Thanks heard it here first <laughs> it's only funny because that's the opposite of who you are as a of person just for I... anyone who doesn't know you and by the way, it's a hilarious episode voiced by uh, Michael Keaton. So you should absolutely watch it, Amy. Okay. Yeah. I, I might be the only living person that hasn't seen it. So, so upsetting. I will take that direction on board. This person, I feel like you might know. This person kept the heart of their late partner as a memento. Okay, but isn't that just Mary Shelley? That is Mary Shelley. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So nothing weird about that at all. We don't know that she killed them. It's no hearsay. Um, very likely she did. I think that's all the evidence <laughs> allegedly, that we have. Allegedly, lawyers. We we do. I'm not an attorney, so I'm just going to go out and limb and say she literally did it, and <laughs> probably scores of others, um, which I just assume. Because her name's kind of dope, and I find that a lot of killers have really interesting names. A lot of killers have first names for both their first name and last name, and she's one of them, and so that just proves it. it. Yeah. She was probably the first person to kill, if we're we're going to be like historicity here. I, I, I write historical sometimes, you guys, so I want you to know that you can take pretty much anything I say in this segment about historical figures to the bank. Yeah, it's literally fact. You don't <laughs> need to do your own research. I don't appreciate the um, oppressive nature of copy editors, personally. Absolutely. Um, I wrote and it down. That's what happened. That is, that's it. And speaking of fact and history and reliability of the information we've provided, uh, if any of the trivia facts that either of us just stated is not actually true, I cannot stress enough how much I don't care. Uh, so, please I, I, I urge you keep it to yourself. Um, thank you. Sit for not in really... the knowledge and pride of your superiority to me. Here's the thing: facts can be warped to prove anything, and 40% <laughs> of people know that. So, 40%. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I went to college, so. Yeah, same. Checkmate. Checkmate. And goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bethany C. Morrow, for doing our first installment of Author or Killer. And we look and forward to future. Episode, <laughs> first and last episode. There will never be another after this. Like, come on. It's going to be really hard. 
Former social worker El Castillo is the host of a popular true crime podcast investigating cold cases of missing children. After four successful seasons, she decides to tackle her white whale, the Countdown Killer. 20 years ago, TCK established a pattern of kidnapping and murdering girls, each a year younger than the last, until he abruptly stopped with his 11-year-old victim. Weeks into her new season, Elle sets out to interview a listener who's promising a tip, only to discover his dead body. When a child is abducted days later, in a pattern that looks very familiar, Elle is convinced TCK is back. Girl 11 has been called delectably tense and terrifying, a stunning tale of secrets, saviors, and serial killers, and a chilling, expertly constructed thriller. Look for it in bookstores on April 20th, 2021. Hallie Sutton is the author of the fantastic feminist noir novel, The Lady Upstairs, published by Putnam in November 2020. She is a former Pitch Wars mentee and currently lives in Los Angeles, California, where she enjoys the noir history and trivia, reading about old murders, and discovering new nuggets about Hollywood and the cults in the area. So how is the day before feeling for you? Um, I am feeling all of the feelings, which are like, by and large, extremely positive. Like it is, uh, it feels like a very big moment for me, even just today where like, I think I put something on Twitter that's been getting a little bit of traction where it's like, it's the last day that I'll be an unpublished author. Like even if my book goes out of print or whatever, like starting tomorrow, I'm a published author and you can't undo that. Can't take that away from you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it is this kind of crazy like moment to just be on the cusp of something like that. And, uh, I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling super emotional, which I like, kind of knew was probably how I was going to feel, but, um, knowing something and feeling it are two different things. So, uh, (laughs) so it's been like a lot of just, uh, yeah, just kind of like splitting time between my to-do list and then constantly kind of like refreshing my Amazon sales page, which is a crazy thing to do because they have not yet recorded any sales, but I'm like any moment now it could happen. (laughs) So (laughs) that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I should get my email at midnight Eastern time that I've got it delivered to my iPad or whatever. Ah, so, how exciting. It's very exciting. Uh, well, why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, your book to readers? So first I'll say uh, I'm talking to the wonderful Hallie Sutton, who is the author of The Lady Upstairs, which is just moments away from releasing into the wild in America. Literally Uh, moments. (laughs) Literally moments away. It's super exciting. Um, So by the time this episode comes out, uh, it will be in bookstores everywhere near you. Uh, So please do find it and support her. It's an exceptional revenge thriller set in Los Angeles, modern day. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the book and what it's about. 
Sure. So Lady Upstairs is a modern feminist noir about women in Los Angeles who run a blackmail agency targeting bad men like Harvey Weinstein. And when the book opens, uh, the main character, Joe, is in the middle of a sting where she is trying to blackmail basically the Harvey Weinstein character, a mega producer who's very lecherous, um, named Hiram Klein. And the young woman that she has hired to do this is a young woman named Ellen. And Ellen is now starting to balk and doesn't want to do it anymore, which is a problem for Joe for a couple of reasons. One of them being that she owes her boss, a woman she only knows as the lady upstairs, a great deal of money. And this was going to be the case that finally got her out of that debt. So that's where we kind of pick, pick up the story. I love books that start with the main character just in absolute deep shit. Like... (laughs) It's just my favorite. I find it really hard as a writer to start my character there. Like, yeah. Because it's it's so hard and you're just going to make their life harder throughout the book. Totally. Um, so props to you because it's such a great beginning and you just yeah. immediately are just clenched with that financial desperation, which I think so many of us have experienced financial desperation in one way or another. So mm-hmm. it's a very relatable uh, uh set of stakes that you know they are going to have to do anything to to get out of that hole thank you thank you um i would i really feel like i cannot take any credit for that uh that was like the joint work of lane fargo who is the master you know another one of our agent sisters the author of um temper and they never learn and uh she is great at creating stakes and when she picked my book out of the pitch war slush pile that was one of the things that she really worked with me on and it's also uh from our agent sharon was really good about sharpening the stakes and um also my editor danielle at putnam so i would say those ladies really like helped me get it there because i too find it hard to like start in a very immediate like desperate place i'm kind of like let's just meander and talk about this hotel (laughs) bar and you know like that's where i want to spend my time (laughs) not specifically the hotel bar but (laughs) a little little. yeah Yeah, a little maybe not as much as joe does but (laughs) right (laughs) because her alcoholism is actually plays a key thing in this book which i thought was really interesting because Normally, when you read noir, especially, or any sort of amateur investigator Mm -hmm. thriller novel, it's always a man, Mm -hmm. and it's always a drunk man. Yes. And so I just thought that that played really interestingly in this book, like flipping that uh, trope on its head. Thank you. And and really just how, like, women women are not allowed and not Mm -hmm. supposed to be heavy drinkers. Totally. And that that adds something to Joe's character as an unlikable female character that we are always <laughs> talking about. Shout out to the Unlikable Female Characters podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. I It was definitely like a very deliberate choice, um, you know, wanting to play with that trope of alcoholism and noir, which I think does have consequences in other noir novels. But Sometimes it can go kind of under the radar about, um, you know, that the detective is always drinking and it's kind of not really a problem. And I definitely wanted it to be a problem for Joe, like not just a problem of like, a, you know, that kind of like I see the bottle across the bar and will she won't she but like, she's starting to fuck up on the job. And like people are starting to notice, you know, her best friend Lou that she works with is starting to notice her sometime paramour is starting to notice and that they all kind of have opinions on it. And that, um, that I wanted that to be a big part of the the 
the the arc with her alcoholism, the actual consequences of it. Um, and yeah, so that was that was a, a thing that I was kind of consciously trying to do. May or may not have had any resonance from uh, the amount of drinking we did in grad school when I was first working <laughs> on this book. <laughs> no, I think it was really great. And I think that's a great point because it seems to me in the in the books that I've read before, uh, the man's alcoholism doesn't really impact his ability to do the job. It's mm-hmm. maybe his personal life that it right. impacts or maybe his day job life that it impacts, but not mm-hmm. the actual ability to accomplish the tasks in the book. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I really liked about it was like, dude, if you don't stop drinking, you're not going to solve this. Right. Like, you're not going to figure it out and you're going to you're going to be in danger. Right. Right. And you're endangering other people. You know, her drinking has right. consequences for uh, other people in her life too. Yes, definitely. I, I know what you mean. It's like Philip Marlowe can drink all he wants and he still has this somehow clarity of vision and can like slice through the bullshit and get to it. And you're like, I don't think that's not true of any alcoholic I've ever met. No, it's almost like drinking makes them more brilliant. And it's right. like, have you ever met a functioning alcoholic? <laughs> I mean, I wonder if maybe that's just like the cosplay of like alcoholic writers who are like definitely this is making me a better writer you know what I mean like all the beat poets who are like yeah all this mescaline and marijuana and LSD is totally what made me write this brilliant book right it's yeah it's uh, the Hemingway model of yeah something yeah. <laughs> um, well I am so excited to see where the book goes I Thank got you. to read an early copy which felt very lucky but I'm excited to have my real and genuine copy land in my iPad soon. I'm excited too. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. This segment is called Quick Five with a Killer. Love it. The killer being you. Yes. Because uh, all of us crime and thriller writers have to kill people and Mm -hmm. come up with interesting ways to do it. Um, which should make us very suspicious to our average everyday friends and probably does. (laughs) I uh, do sincerely look forward to the sideways glances I'll be getting from my coworkers at my day job after they read Girl 11. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So the first question I have is related to that suspicion. So what Google search have you done that would make the FBI knock on your door? (laughs) So I was thinking about this question because you were kind enough to provide them in advance. And um, I am not a crime writer who is fantastic with forensics. This is like not a thing I probably should admit, but it's not always what I'm super interested (laughs) in. It's a safe place. Yeah, safe place. So, uh, you know, I think that there are probably people who have more interesting searches, like, can you strangle somebody with like a shower curtain or something like that's really probably interesting. I think um, where I'm at with the dangerous Google searches is that I have now Googled so many different serial killers that Google is suggesting them to me. And I think that (laughs) should probably be worrisome to people. Like I'll just type in something like I'm looking up, like, I don't know, apple crisp recipe and I'll start like APP and it'll just fill in the name of a serial killer. Like I know what you want. And I'm like, wow, (laughs) you really do. And so then I get off on that and (laughs) read about that serial killer for like 15 minutes. And then I go back to the apple crisp. So, uh, it's more, the predictive analytics are starting to make me ask questions about myself. (laughs) I think that's concerning enough to be a very reasonable contribution to this discussion. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) Uh, Google knows me better. (laughs) 
Yeah, you just start looking up char-grilled corn, and it comes up with Charlie Manson. And right, exactly. And like, well, now I'm in that rabbit hole for a few hours, and totally. someone else is going to have to make that corn. <laughs> yep, that corn is now somebody else's responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right, next question. How do you come up with plot twists? Are you the type of person who thinks them up ahead of time and plans for them, or do they come to you while you write? Um, so I would actually say currently both, um, in the lady upstairs, there is a big plot twist. That's kind of my midpoint. Um, I don't know if it's a plot twist, uh, but it's, it's the big thing that happens that shifts the game for the characters. And the reason I'm reluctant to call it a twist is that I think that there is a difference between twists and big events. And I think that sometimes they get used interchangeably, you know, like gone girls midpoint is a twist. Like Amy was alive all along. Spoiler alert. Sorry guys, but that's been out for a while. So um, (laughs) it's been like 10 years. Yeah. I I feel safe with it. Uh, (laughs) But so the big event that happens that maybe isn't super predictable, which I'm reluctant to call a twist at my midpoint was not something that I had actually planned. It was something that I got into the scene that I knew I was going to write this scene, but I didn't know where it was going to go. And I was kind of like, oh, I think Joe would handle it like this. And the like this turned out to be a pretty big piece for a bunch of the characters. And so then I had to then I had created this problem for myself and then I had to kind of work with it and um, and solve it, which was a uh, difficult way to go about things. Um, Hopefully makes it feel fresh and surprising for the reader. But it definitely was like then I had created this problem for myself and I had to solve it. So right. for my for my second book that I'm working on, um, the big twist is something that I knew ahead of time um, and was kind of the reason that I wanted to write the book. And then I built the mystery back from there. And so I'm hoping that that's ultimately easier for me to craft because you can kind of, I know where I'm going and I can kind mm-hmm. of titrate it as opposed to being like, oh, I just did this and that feels right, but now I have to deal with it. So- <laughs> Currently saying, I guess I do both. Um, right. I don't know if this is how you want the segment to go, but I'm actually really curious about your answer to that too. Do you plan oh, plot sure. twists in advance or do you, is it something that comes to you? I, I think it's also both for me as well. I'm much more conscious of planning my books now because mm-hmm. my first two books I wrote without any sort of plan or outline and neither of them sold. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's the reason why, but I think I I forced myself to learn more about plotting and structure mm-hmm. as I realized that I wasn't going to sell a literary suspense. I was going mm-hmm. to sell a genre suspense or a genre thriller book. Right. Um, and to do that, I needed to plan things out and uh, so I do have some things occur to me while I'm writing, and sometimes they are probably what could be called twists, or mm-hmm. I might plan something as a twist, like which is what's happening right now with my second book, yeah. where something that I planned as a twist is actually just going to be the midpoint. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so I do have a couple situations like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's sort of funny because you would think of a twist as being something that you couldn't plan for because if you plan for it, then it seems like it would be more right. difficult not to make it obvious while you're writing. And that's something I always struggle with. I struggled with mm-hmm. it with girl 11 as well. Mm-hmm. There's a big reveal in that book and the balance between teasing it and giving it away too soon is mm-hmm. so tenuous. Mm-hmm. And it's also really difficult to work out with 
your editor and your agent who have all read it multiple right. times, whether right. there, there um, was a time where we had both read the book so many times where we were both like, this is just so obvious. Like, yeah. it's just, <laughs> nobody's going to be surprised. So it was actually a relief. We asked the copy editor to uh, provide feedback on that mm-hmm. after they read and they were like, no, I had no idea. So, oh, good. Uh, so we we're like, Whew. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. It is. That is the problem with twists too. I think, um, yeah, once the cat's out of the bag, it's really hard to go back and kind of unring it a little bit and see it with fresh eyes in this different way, which I think like can add a richness to rereading text too, but definitely in the editing stage is a lot like, oh geez, this has to be so obvious, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the same thing again happened with my second book where I have my, my critique partner, mm-hmm. I sent her the first, you know, 10,000 words or something like that. And I said, you know, eventually it's going to be revealed that X does X. And she was like, oh, that's not a reveal. I, I know that already. <laughs> oh, but see, that's also useful feedback too. <laughs> it's very useful feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very useful feedback. And it actually worked out in this instance where I was like, that doesn't need to be revealed. Like they right. can just know right away that that's the case and that's fine. Right. Uh, but yeah, so it's it, that's one of the reasons why critique partners and everything are so great because mm-hmm. with things like that, you you know whether it makes the impact. And obviously there's always going to be people that guess your right. twists. Right. Unless unless you've done something like really, really out there. Uh, it's just really hard to hide it from everybody, especially people who read thrillers all the time. Definitely. I am the worst. I guess <laughs> I guess twists all the time. And Me I hate too. that about myself, but I can't <laughs> stop it. <laughs> well, you know what I think part of the problem is too. So I have I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um one of them is that the problem I think is that the marketing of these books, when they call them twisty, you know, when I see that on a cover, then immediately my brain starts scanning the horizon for like, what is, <laughs> what, what am I looking for? You know, what is it that I'm not seeing? Um, and then I think too, uh, yeah, you can't fool everyone. And it's like, you have to balance too. Like when you have a big twist or a big reveal, part of the satisfaction of the payoff is that it has to have been there all along. You know, if it's something that's just like, and then they were aliens, you're just like, that doesn't, that's stupid, you know, like, or I know some people like that. I don't mean to be offensive, but like, (laughs) so it's balancing between you have to seed the clues through well, and they all have to make sense and be like in retrospect that it's like this inevitable feel with also you want something to be genuinely surprising. And that's really hard work to do. It's hard to do. Yeah. Question number three, which crime writer or podcast host would you want to cover the story of your murder? That is such a good question. Okay. So I have three answers to this. I'm sorry. You're like calling this a quick, quick, quick five, but I am making this way too long. (laughs) Um, So from a fiction perspective, I would want it to be Megan Abbott because she would turn it into something beautiful and subtle and bring forth all these like really interesting threads of my life. Um, From a nonfiction perspective, I would want it to be Sarah Weinman because she would do such a thorough job canvassing my life and bring up these like really deep connections. Uh, And she's the crime lady. She's the best. And then... I'm getting super meta on this question. I would want Sarah D. Bunting, who is one of the co-editors of my new favorite thing on this planet, which is the Best Evidence newsletter. Um, I would want her to review the miniseries or podcast or book or whatever that comes out of it because she's snarky. She's fun. She'd be like, why do we care about this dead white lady? There's a bunch of dead white ladies. Like, 
I would want her to cover the coverage of my murder. <laughs> and all of um, this is just a long con to get them to like respond to me on Twitter. FYI. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're tagging all of them. And yes. I'm just being like, Hallie Sutton, would you like you to cover her inevitable murder? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> By any one of the serial killers she's Googled that are still at large. <laughs> Next question. Have you ever written anything that scared you? And this can be like chills down your spine or, mm -hmm. you know, something that like, because you're writing like rage thriller, rage uh -huh. revenge thriller. So uh -huh. some, like I would imagine that you kind of have to delve into some pretty deep anger mm -hmm. <laughs> to be able to write that well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I would say I've never written anything that scares me in the sense of like genuine fear. Like the scariest book I've ever read is, uh, for me was Helter Skelter. It's the only book I've had nightmares reading the whole time I was reading it. Um, so I never had an experience like that, but I definitely do when you talk about the rage and for this new book that I'm working on, the twist that's kind of at the center of the murder is like super dark that mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's necessarily scared me, but I, I am like, oh, that's fascinating that I like <laughs> want to spend a whole book with this. You know, I don't think, I think you can get a little navel gazy as a crime writer being like, why do I like to write about this? Because like crime is inherently fascinating to like many of us. It's not, you know, right. new, but, um, We're but it does special. make me want, <laughs> right, exactly. But it like sometimes stuff like that'll bring up questions where it's like, wow, am I really that angry at like, certain people in my life or really do I feel that much anger on a daily basis, you know? Uh, and I, I think it's a good outlet for it. I think it's a really healthy place, but it is, it does make me wonder about the parts of myself that I haven't tapped totally, you know, or tapped consciously. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's that. I think we all have at least women. I don't, I've never been a man, so I don't know, but we all have that underlying rage at all uh -huh. times. Uh -huh. that just kind of, our daily existence just force us to push that down mm -hmm. and sort of ignore it and pretend that it's not there. Yeah. And so then when you have to write about it, you have to actually pull those feelings and thoughts to the surface. Mm -hmm. And because you haven't seen them in such a long time, it can be really disconcerting. I'm definitely having that experience with my book right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that the um, dealing with things that you're angry about is a big part of writing and yeah. it actually is what produces some of the best writing. I mm -hmm. had a professor in my master's degree who said a writer needs three things, talent, perseverance, and rage. Oh, I like that. And I thought that that was always very true. So well, I, love Miller, that. I love that quote. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. I'm going to put that up somewhere in my office. Uh, last question. What real life mystery do you most want to see solved? This is such a good question. And I really, I am very eager to hear yours if you want to share too. But I was spending a lot of time thinking about this. Um, in Los Angeles, you know, one of the big ones is the Black Dahlia. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I think, but I don't think that would be my answer. And I was thinking about this too, you know, Jack the Ripper, another infamous. But I think that there is something interesting that these kind of big, um, unsolved murders that are maybe not directly impacting survivors anymore do for us culturally. Like I don't, I kind of think that if they ever definitively solved the black Dahlia murder, that you would almost lose something a little bit, you know, you would have maybe because mm -hmm. you couldn't bring the person to justice, you know, they're, they're undoubtedly dead. Um, 
So I don't know that I would want one of those solved. But as I was thinking about it, I think I would want the Zodiac Killer apprehended. I think that he probably is still alive, maybe is still alive, or at least his victims and like the victims' families, not the victims, the victims' families are still alive and that it might actually matter to somebody to see that solved. Um, so I That's think my, one. yeah, I think my pick would be the Zodiac. I think that there would be a, a, a worthwhile like cultural catharsis in a way that there wouldn't be for like Jack the Ripper for something like that. Yeah, I would be fascinated to see that because I've definitely heard at least like one or two podcasts with very clear and convincing evidence that a specific person was the Zodiac mm-hmm. and there were two different people. Yeah. It's like, but which, but what? Right, those two both be true. <laughs> uh, I mean, up, up until a couple of years ago, I would have said the Golden State Killer for right. me. Like, and so I'm just... You know, the fact that that's been solved and was solved within weeks of Michelle McNamara's book coming out, even though obviously like she would not take the credit for it being solved is still just like one of the most beautiful moments. And I just wish she could have seen it. Yeah, Um, I totally agree. Yeah. But the letter to the old man in at the end of Mm. her book is one of the most incredible pieces of writing I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and she actually is, there's a quote from her book in my epigraph from my, from my debut, because she was such a huge inspiration for girl Mm -hmm. 11. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, probably the mystery I would most like to see solved is the diet love pass. I don't know. Oh yes. I was just reading about this. That's the one where they, the Russians. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they died like out in the open away from their tent in this place in Russia. It's, I can't even remember the specifics of the story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it bothered me so much that there wasn't a resolution. Yeah. Like put it out of my head to stop obsessing over it. (laughs) I know what you mean by this. Yes. (laughs) But it just made no sense. Like Mm -hmm. it made no sense the way that they died. I think they were all outside their tent, um, like without coats or anything else on like it and in the middle of winter it didn't make any sense it was just a bizarre thing isn't there something with that too which funny enough I was just reading an article about this a couple of weeks ago and so the details should be more clear but like someone nearby had reported hearing some strange sound or something too there was like some sort of sonic effect with it yes yeah. yeah, there was a there was a question about whether they were doing some sort of testing, I think, mm-hmm. or something like that with sonic vibrations. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, though. Like that, there was just so many things about it that were just weird. Yeah, like, it just it was just one of those. I can't watch unsolved mysteries because it would actually gr- drive me crazy. I, yeah, I just can't deal with. Cold cases are one thing, but like just a mysterious thing that happened is yeah. somehow is somehow worse. Like, right, right. I'd love it, to know who actually. I mean, I think I do know, but I'm not going to say who killed John Bonet. But we're going to talk about that later because that was almost <laughs> what I said was John Bonet. But I was like, I feel like more people would feel a catharsis for the Zodiac, you know? Yeah. But like, I'm fascinated no, there, by that one. There, yeah. I, I have several mysteries that I would love to see solved but for some reason the dialogue pass one sticks with me i just wish i knew what happened there yeah i wouldn't yeah i wonder if we'll ever know i mean we probably won't that is so frustrating it is so frustrating (laughs) when life is not like a book (laughs) yeah yeah maybe one day maybe whatever the afterlife looks like we'll be able to like actually pull up a file and and 
find out what happened. <laughs> that would be the most satisfying version of the afterlife for me. Like all the the questions <laughs> answered. Like, oh, thank goodness. Amazing. So yes. before I sign off, um, thank you so much, Hallie. It's been amazing to talk with you. And everybody, if you haven't already, go out and buy The Lady Upstairs. It is an exceptional thriller, as I've said, and you will just whip through it. I could not put it down. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me on your podcast. This was so fun. This has been like my favorite interview we've done so far. So yay. That's so exciting. (laughs) All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with author Hallie Sutton. The last segment today is a very short one called A Nervous Wreck, R-E-C where I recommend to you the latest thing that I'm reading, watching, listening to. The very first recommendation I have is for a new podcast called Tenfold More Wicked. It's a new podcast on the Exactly Right Network, which is the network owned by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder fame. Tenfold More Wicked is hosted by the true crime historian, which, by the way, sounds like the best job ever. Kate Winkler Dawson. It explores the most intelligent, crafty, manipulative serial killers throughout history, starting with a 19th century serial killer named Edward Ruloff. Absolutely great podcast. I'm so excited. There's a new episode in my feed right now, and I can't wait to listen to it. I also recently finished the psychological thriller called Seven Lies by Elizabeth Kay. That was an absolutely immersive, almost frighteningly intimate read. The main character is someone you get completely wrapped up in, and it's very chilling. It's about friendship, and when that line between friendship and obsession gets crossed, especially if it only gets crossed by one person, what that looks like and how terrifying that can be, I highly recommend that book. And then finally, for crime documentaries, I actually very recently just watched The Jinx for the first time, which I know I'm about five years behind everybody else on that one. But if you haven't seen it, it's about the ultra-wealthy murder-accused Robert Durst and his alleged victims, and it was an absolutely riveting true crime miniseries I definitely would recommend if you haven't had a chance to see it that's all from me thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the podcast please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app to help other people find us make sure you check out the episode notes so that you can find Hallie Sutton's novel Bethany C. Morrow's website and of course my website www.asuterclark.com You can find me on all social media at asuterclark. And I hope you will join us next time. In about a month's time, we'll have another episode with a thriller author that I am so excited to interview whose debut novel is coming out in January. See you next time.